Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. listeners welcome back to buried motives we're glad you're joining us this week it's been a little bit of a crazy week for both of us it has family life can be challenging sometimes i think every family has had one of those weeks where you're just hanging on for the ride (laughs) hanging on by a thread sometimes (laughs) that's right melissa and i have definitely had those kinds of weeks but we're hanging in and we still wanted to record to bring you a special family day episode we have a family day holiday where we just get to celebrate our families and that's coming up and so we thought with that in mind we'd bring you a case about families Oh, are you covering a family annihilation? No. What? Those are your favorites. (laughs) I know they are my favorites, but I thought that was too cliche to cover on family day. That's true. It would be expected, I guess. Yeah. So I thought I would choose a case that demonstrated the bonds that happen in a family and the connectedness between family members and what can tear those bonds apart. Ooh. And in this case, it may not be what or who you assume it to be. Oh, I'm super intrigued now. All right. Well, let's get into it. So my inner nerd may show through a little bit in this case. (laughs) What? I know. (laughs) Melissa, you're not a nerd. No. (laughs) Science fair was one of my favorite things in high school. Not even in grade school. In high school, I was still the nerd doing science fairs. (laughs) I would not consider you a nerd. Today, we're going to talk about DNA analysis and some pretty amazing techniques that are used to solve cold cases around the world. It's common in a case where DNA evidence is left behind to analyze those samples and then compare them to the suspects. And if it doesn't match any of the suspects, then there's big databases of previously collected DNA samples that they're compared to. And now those databases have been expanded even further to include the ancestry DNA registries when someone consents. Well, that's how it's supposed to work, at least, because some of them just throw your DNA in there and you don't have to consent. That is really becoming a popular thing, isn't it? People having their ancestry tested through their DNA. Yeah, it is. And that's how the Golden State Killer was found, right? Yes. Police used the evidence from a cold case, compared it to the databases for the ancestry DNA. And because a relative had submitted their sample, the police were able to make a connection between that person's DNA and the DNA from a crime scene. Then they searched through the person's family tree to find their suspects. And in the case of the Golden State Killer, it was a cousin who had submitted their sample. Isn't that so cool? It I is. was so excited when I had heard about that. It's just fascinating what you can actually do with it, yeah. right? Science is awesome. It is. But what happens when no match is found through any of those avenues? Then what do you do? The investigators and scientists on this case came up with an answer. And it's pretty impressive. So how'd they do it? Well, we're going to get into it today. Oh, I want to know. <laughs> I want to know now. <laughs> we're going to test out while you're paying attention because we're going to follow the evidence in this case. I'm not going to tell you straight up who did it. I'm going to see what assumptions and guesses that you'll make about who did it. All right. I'm putting ready? my detective hat on. <laughs> But I'll give you some leading questions to get your assumptions running. Okay. Have you ever acted on an impulse and then regretted it later? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Who hasn't? Or acted on an assumption. Yep. Yeah, I think we all have, right? Yeah, Yeah. we all do. And what happens when we make a wrong decision following a compulsion? And then a wrong decision leads to another one and then another. And you just keep making bad decisions to cover up the last bad decision. That's when you need a good friend to help you out of that. (laughs) But when are people going to learn that one lie doesn't make another lie better? You know, like if you keep kind of getting into it. But it's just that escalation of commitment, I think, that, okay, I did that. And so now I should probably follow it up with this, right? Or this leads to that. Yeah, you can see how it happens for sure. Absolutely. On February 4th, 2012, on a chilly Saturday morning, a rural community woke to the news that two high school sweethearts had been murdered in their home. Oh, no. LaDonna Mosley was born and raised in Rockingham County, North Carolina. And on August 12th, in 1985, she had married her high school sweetheart, Douglas Troy French, also a native of the Rockingham County. 
The two met in high school, and even though there was a three-year gap between them, they started dating after LaDonna had tried to play matchmaker with Troy and his girlfriend at the time, helping him to communicate with her. Really? Yes. That's hilarious. That's so cute. Well, their relationship seemed like it was the basis of a rom-com. Yeah. Right from the very beginning. That's true. Yeah. I'll help you with another girl. And then they realize (laughs) they love each other. That's right. And life after their marriage would appear from the outside to follow that same storyline. They just seem to have this kind of perfect life. Aww. In 1992, the couple were blessed with their first child, a little girl named Whitley, and their son, Hunter, would join the family in 1997. They would settle on a piece of family land to raise their children at 791 Pinewood Road. Sounds so sweet, but I know you're going to destroy me (laughs) (laughs) because you're going to tell me what happens. Obviously, I'm going to destroy you about this family because they're the ones that got murdered. (laughs) The family lived in a tight-knit community with LaDonna's family within walking distance from them, a community where everyone knew the family. They were active participants in both Whitley and Hunter's sports, and the parents were happy cheerleaders for them both. Troy was particularly hopeful of his son's baseball career and invested a considerable amount of time and money towards his son's development. Whitley had recently been accepted into East Carolina University into a nursing program. Both Troy and LaDonna's families, the Frenches and the Mosleys, had deep roots in the community, and both of these people were well-liked. It kind of reminds me of our, like, small-town vibes. You know, watching the kids play basketball or, you know, you get to watch your kids play hockey, those kinds of things. And just watching our kids grow up and go to university. And yeah. And when you live in a small rural community, you know, most of your community members, right? Yeah. 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 Your kids have lifelong friends. And so that's what it seemed like their life was like. They lived right close to LaDonna's family. They had family dinners every week (laughs) with their extended family. And this sounds like your life, Melissa. (laughs) I'm sorry, but the parallels right now your kids and all these activities your family lives your husband's family lives close by high school sweethearts you live in the country well hopefully we don't get murdered i'm getting a little concerned now if you tell me she's a nurse and he's a firefighter then we gotta stop no that's bad juju no they weren't they had totally different professions okay but still equally respected oh On the evening of February 3rd, Troy and LaDonna had dinner with their daughter Whitley. She was visiting for the first time since going away to nursing school that January. Troy prepared Whitley's favorite Japanese dish and the three enjoyed their meal together. Hunter was out of town that evening on an overnight swim meet in Goldsboro, a decision that was made just that afternoon. Swimming was a new skill that Hunter was developing and he was competing for the Rockingham County High School. Troy planned to attend the meet the next morning to cheer on his son. After having dinner, the couple headed out to watch a basketball game at the Rockingham County High School. When they returned, they said goodnight to Whitley around 10.30 when she went up to her second-story childhood bedroom to watch Netflix on her laptop until she fell asleep. It is assumed at some point that Troy and LaDonna retired to their bedroom because Whitley recalled walking around at 1.30 a.m. to use the bathroom and the house being quiet then. At that time, she turned off her computer and went back to sleep. Have you ever woken up in the night with a start and felt that something was wrong? Yeah. I think sometimes it's really crazy how our imaginations can make us believe that things are happening when really there's nothing there. For sure. And I've told you stories where I've been waking up in the middle of the night thinking like something is happening and they're so believable that I'm getting up and walking around in my house looking for stuff, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's exactly what happened to Whitley a short time later. Unfortunately for her, though, it wasn't her imagination. Oh, no. A presence or the noise of a creaking floorboard alerted her subconscious and had her wake up when she awoke a hooded intruder was in her bedroom (gasps) no yeah she started to scream the person jumped on top of her (gasps) tried to cover her mouth to stop her from screaming but it wasn't successful at some point during the struggle a knife was pulled out by the intruder and whitley was cut on her upper left arm her screams alerted her parents who were sleeping on the first floor that something was terribly wrong that's terrible could you imagine as a parent hearing no. your, your child's screams? No, and what, I can't. What would you do? Well, you would run there to help yeah, them. Of exactly. course. That is one of the worst nightmares you can have is waking up to someone attacking you in your bedroom, the place where you're supposed to feel safe. And it's not her college dorm where she hadn't been used to. This is a house that she had grown up in all her life. It's her childhood bedroom where her safest memories would be. Yeah, and her parents are there. Mm -hmm. It would have been so scary. Well, you've already got me shocked because I thought she was going to wake up to find her parents already murdered. So already this is taking a different avenue than I (laughs) expected. So like you said, the parents came running towards their daughter. Yeah, 
and the intruder heard them coming up. And so he jumped off Whitley and started running for it. And Whitley started to pursue him. She did? Uh-huh. She got up and started to chase him? Yep. <laughs> I love that. (laughs) That's dangerous, everybody, but I love that. The person started down the stairs just as LaDonna and Troy French were running towards their daughter's screams. (gasps) Oh, no. When the intruder saw the other people, they switched their knife to a 9mm handgun (gasps) and opened fire on the two protective parents as Whitley watched. The first to be shot was LaDonna. She was at the bottom of the stairs by the front door heading for the stairs. She was shot multiple times from close range as the person ran past her. As she raised her hands to protect herself, she was shot three times in her left wrist, in her right hand, and her left shoulder. Despite her wounds, she was still standing. A fourth bullet would pierce her left chest and a fifth struck her on the right side of her head. Oh no. She fell face first into the door by the front entrance. Troy, who was behind LaDonna as they ran to help their daughter, watched as his wife was shot down. The hooded intruder then turned towards him and shot him once in the chest. Troy turned towards the back kitchen door to escape, but collapsed near the island in the kitchen. The intruder fired another bullet into his back as he lay on the floor. Then, as Whitney watched, they turned towards her, but didn't fire, choosing instead to run past her and push LaDonna's body away from the front door, enough to unlock it and run out into the darkness. Oh... What a dirtbag. That's terrible. Could you even imagine what it would be like to watch your parents gun down? No, it would take a second and happen in slow motion all at the same time. Yeah. I can't even imagine. For all of them. Even for LaDonna getting shot. Like, because she didn't die right away. She got shot three times before she even fell. Mm -hmm. And her husband seeing this. No, I cannot imagine. And then why didn't he shoot Whitley? I don't know. He looked at her and then he turned away. I'm wondering if he had like broken in there to sexually assault her because that happens often when people break into a young girl's room. Mm -hmm. Perhaps he wasn't planning to murder anybody that night and then wasn't expecting to see these people in panic. I don't know. I'm not making any excuses at all. Listen to the assumptions, people. See, these are my assumptions right now. Yeah. That Whitley was the target. And the parents were an unfortunate event that happened because he just wanted to get out of there. Yeah. And the reason why I wanted to tell this case like this is because I want to see your assumptions build as we go through the evidence. Are you going to make me look like an idiot? (laughs) No, you're going to guess it, right? I'm sure you will. (laughs) Might not. (laughs) Right now, you're probably like, oh, she dumb. She dumb, guys. <laughs> but I think if there's natural conclusions that we all draw, when we hear news of something happening, we start to make assumptions based on what we believe or what we can perceive would have happened. And sometimes those assumptions are wrong. Oh, for sure. Because I'm assuming right now that the perpetrator knows Whitley and that's why they didn't shoot her. So Whitley ran back to her room to retrieve her cell phone and quickly dialed 911 and begged for help at 2.12 a.m. on February 4th. But help would come too late. In the 13 minutes that it would take for the first state trooper to enter the house, both of her parents would die from their injuries. So they weren't dead when the guy first left? When you listen to the 911 call, it sounds like her mom was dead right away. She was actually too afraid to even go up to her mom and check her. And her dad was gurgling. So he was still alive. Yeah. Whitley actually attempted to do CPR on her father because she felt that he was still breathing and making gurgling noises. But she was too scared to even approach her mother's lifeless form at first. Oh, Well, I bet her mom looked horrific. Well, at one point in the 911 call, the dispatcher is trying to walk her through, keep her calm. And he's like, I need you to go check your mom. And then when she finally walks over to check her mom, she thought that she had only been shot in the shoulder. And she's like, she's been shot in the head. She didn't even see or register that she had been shot in the head until she went over and looked at her body. Oh, this is heartbreaking. It would be so awful. You would never get over something like that. No. It just all happened so quickly. Even though she had witnessed the whole thing, she couldn't register what had happened to them. Oh, for sure. Within 20 minutes of the 911 call, fire and EMS were on the scene as well. And law enforcement officers were already asking for an investigator to come to the scene. Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. The 911 call ends with the request to make sure that the 911 operator is keeping the audio for evidence. LaDonna's father, Donald Mosley, so remember that her family lives close by. Right. He was awakened by the lights and flashing in his bedroom window. Thinking that it had been an accident at the crossroads, he left to investigate. And so he went out to go help this car accident. The lights weren't coming from the corner, but from his daughter's property line. Oh, can you imagine? Yeah. Once you make that realization, like that's coming from my daughter's house? Mm Mm-hmm. And what he found was no accident at all. No. Troy and LaDonna had been shot in an apparent break and enter gone wrong. And Whitley had been rushed to the emergency department. 
Family members whose homes were in the vicinity of the French home saw the commotion and came to the house. So all of their family members, because they lived in this area where it was all family land, there were several that were very close by. And so they all started gathering at the house, wondering what is going on, only to be turned away by tight-lipped investigators. Well, and for sure, course, they wouldn't be allowed in. That's like, right. They would contaminate the crime and scene. nobody would tell them where the kids were. Everybody knew that Whitley was visiting from school that night and they all wanted to know where her little brother was, Hunter. Right. They and didn't know he was at a swim meet? No, because it had only been decided that afternoon that he would oh, go. Right. It was last minute. Yeah, it was last minute. And so they were all like, where are the kids? And they would tell them that, well, Whitley's been taken to the hospital, but that's all they would tell them. And nobody knew where Hunter was until like hours later. So was Hunter actually at his meet? It wasn't Hunter that did this? Can't tell you. <laughs> See, because I don't know, my mind is going like all these different avenues. Maybe it was the son. Hunter Maybe was he at said it. he was going to go. No, Hunter was at his swim meet. They called his teacher supervisors that were with them and they didn't want anybody telling him what had happened to his parents. So they actually collected all of the kids that were at the swim meet with him. They collected all of their phones so that nobody would get any messages mm. about it until their family members were able to get there and actually break the news to him themselves which oh, i thought was good on the that's the really teachers. good yeah once the family had heard that whitley was in the hospital they all raced to the hospital to find out how whitley was whitley had been transported to the ann penn hospital by 2 40 a.m and there received two stitches for a cut that she had received on the front of her left arm the deputies that escorted her to the hospital photographed all her injuries the cut on her arm and a burn mark on her chest it took almost three hours for her family to learn that she was actually going to be all right that would have been torturous Mm -hmm. How'd she get a burn mark? I don't know. Are we going to find out later? No, you actually oh, you never do. Oh, I could not find it in any of the reports. An explanation of why she had this burn mark on her chest. Huh. Maybe something had happened prior that was totally unrelated. Maybe. But in the evidence logs, there were two injuries that were documented. Interesting. Back at the family home, friends and family and reporters were gathered at the small rural house to learn what had happened to the two beloved members of the families in the community. Police investigation started almost immediately. Sheriff Page, who oversaw the investigation, was a family friend and was motivated to find the answers for these two families that were so respected in the community. So he had actually been with LaDonna and Troy that night. And I think that kind of sometimes is overlooked in small communities is most often you're working on scenes where you know the victim in a oh, small for town. Sure. The evidence from the scene was processed over the next 12 hours. And the house would be released back to the family by 6 a.m. the next morning. Whitley by 6 a.m. the next morning, they mm -hmm. were done? Mm-hmm. And that will go to some of the criticism about this case. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I am shocked. By 6 a.m. By 6 a.m. It just happened like at 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So it was just 28 hours. And they wow. had released the house back to the family members. That does not seem right. Whitley gave a description of the person of an unknown gender between 5'8 and 5'9 and was thought to be around 160 to 170 pounds, an average build. She said that the intruder was wearing green pants and a hooded sweatshirt that was either dark or light gray. Okay, so she's not saying it's a man. It could be a woman. Yet when she made her statement, she wouldn't say it was a man or a woman. She went back and forth whether the hoodie was dark or light gray. She really couldn't give them a good description at all. She had never seen the intruder's face. Right. She was probably in a state of shock. Probably. An outside witness that had driven by the front of the house at the time of the shooting stated that he had seen no cars in the driveway or the road. Police found five distinctive spots of blood, one on the railing and four on the stairs that did not match anyone connected to the French's or anyone that had access to the house. Over the course of the investigation, police actually ran over 65 DNA tests trying to find a match to anyone that had any relation to the house, leading them to believe that it must have been an outside job. They also found the spare key, which was hidden under the deck, had skin fragments on it that did not match anyone connected to the house and did not match the blood found on the stairs. Oh, it had to be somebody who knew that the key was there mm -hmm. and an empty gun box in the house an empty gun box what so they brought their gun still in the box to the house no, it was Troy's gun box that was empty. Oh. According to the autopsies, the final time of death that was reported for both Troy and LaDonna was 2-12, the time of the 911 call. Right. So, okay. I gotta ask now, though. <laughs> <laughs> She's got to go back to this. I, I got to go back to the gun. Was it the same bullets? Did the bullets match his gun? I'm going to get there. Hold on. Well, you have me playing detective. <laughs> I have to no. ask these questions. <laughs> 
The forensic pathologist reports the bullet's trajectories would reveal that both were shot from an elevated position. The bullet to strike LaDonna in the head was deemed to be the fatal shot as it entered her right cheekbone and severed the spine, causing a severe hemorrhage at the base of the brain. The bullet wound that entered Troy's chest traveled at a 45-degree angle, piercing his heart and lung, diaphragm, and liver. The bullet fragments that were removed were then matched to those that were collected from shell casings where Troy practiced with targets. The bullets had been shot from Troy's own gun. Okay. I made that assumption. <laughs> yeah. Good assumption. You knew it. Well, when there's an empty gun box, like really how hard <laughs> is it to assume that? So it has to be someone who is familiar with the home because if they know where the key is, they know where his gun is. But they've done DNA testing on anybody that they could and would suspect even entered the house occasionally. They did DNA testing on and none of them came back as matches. Huh. So Troy had told LaDonna's parents that he was missing his high point nine millimeter gun several months before but had not reported it missing to the local authorities and family members did tell police that they were sure the gun was not kept out in the open but that it had been hidden somewhere in the house and they knew this because troy had told them that hunter and his friend had been caught handling it without permission and troy was fearful that they would be playing with it again and so he actually hid it in a place that he thought nobody would find it so it wasn't like it was out in the open it was actually hidden in their house somewhere so, sorry, it went missing weeks before? Months before. Months before. Mm-hmm. So the gun went missing months before while it was in a hiding place. And then was used to murder them. And then was used to murder them. So someone had been in their house months prior to get it. Mm-hmm. Criminal profilers theorized that the crime was an impulsive one based on the layout of the crime scene. But that didn't go along with the gun being taken months before. No. And most troubling to the investigators was that there was no signs of forced entry ever found. And Whitley's 911 call specifically stated that she recalled the intruder having to unlock the front door to flee from the house. Because they came in the back. No, all the doors were locked. What? Mm -hmm. All the doors were already locked. Yeah. So as an intruder, you come in and you lock the door behind you. Is it so that they can't escape? And okay, that's pretty brazen. I'm thinking about it here. For someone to come in months before to steal the gun that you're later going to kill them with, like they're just doubling your chances of exposure. Mm -hmm. Like steal a gun from somewhere else. It doesn't make any sense. And at the time that they were investigating the crime, it didn't make any sense. No. They had all this contradictory evidence as saying it was an inside job and that no, it was somebody that wasn't associated with the family at all. And Was it Whitley? Because who else could it be? Because <laughs> uh, that's pretty superficial, a little cut on the front of your arm. Mm-hmm. Right? They didn't shoot her. That's right. They looked at her and then ran away. This is killing me, not yeah. knowing. With no evidence of a break-in and contradictory evidence coming from the crime scene, police turned their attention to a motive. Interviews were conducted with several people to learn who would have a reason to murder Troy and LaDonna. And the only person that showed any motive to want them dead was Whitley, the only witness that had been left relatively unharmed by the shooter. Hmm. How did she sound on the 911 call? Horrific and totally distressed. It sounded genuine. Yeah, I would totally believe it was genuine. Okay. It was well known from both sides of the family that Whitley and her parents did not see eye to eye on her relationship with John Alvarez, but John was Whitley's own high school sweetheart. The two had met in high school and began to date in 2010. John was the son of Jose and Elaine Alvarez, a respected family that owned a local landscaping company. John was the second oldest in a family of four boys and was a year older than Whitley. When he left to attend East Carolina University to study geological sciences, Whitley's parents were not fans of her plans to follow him to school the following year, especially LaDonna. Oh, so the boyfriend did it then. But they had already cleared anybody that they could even connect remotely to the house. And they took DNA samples of John. Of John. Mm -hmm. But he would have easy access to the home. He would. And she could have let him in. Mm -hmm. Or he would know where the key is hidden at least. Yeah. The arguments between Whitley and her parents occurred often and very loudly. So it was well known that they did not like her boyfriend at all. And the Frenches weren't the only ones with reservations. John's parents didn't feel that the two should be dating either, and they were just as concerned that the two were actually talking about getting married in the future. Because they were so young? I don't know what the reservations were on both of the families. It was just made very apparent that neither family thought that the other one was either good enough for their son or for their daughter and and didn't feel like the relationship would actually work out. Hmm. And so they didn't want them dating. That's interesting because sometimes it's one family, but not often is it both. And apparently Whitley actually went and confronted John's father about what, like, why don't you like me? Really? Yeah. She was a little brazen. Well, she is. I mean, she chased the perpetrator out the front door. It's just her personality. She's a little brave, that one. 
But despite her parents' discouragement, Whitley would attend ECU starting in January 2012. They grudgingly helped her pay tuition and for her apartment. But according to extended family members, Troy and LaDonna were reconsidering their financial support, saying that their daughter could apply for loans and scholarships just like anyone else. Whitley was upset that her parents were considering withdrawing their financial support. She was particularly upset that her parents couldn't afford to help her, but they could afford to buy a new car and had enrolled Hunter into a year-round baseball academy, which was quite expensive. Oh, I can only imagine. Mm -hmm. Most damning to Whitley was the interaction that she had with her grandmother just prior to going home for dinner that night with her parents on February 3rd, when her maternal grandmother asked her if she and her parents planned to talk about the issues they were having with Whitley and John's relationship and her finances. Whitley told her grandmother that they were going to settle it that night. Oh, so it's sounding more like Whitley is in on this. Mm -hmm. If you're just looking at motives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I have a feeling like that the boyfriend somehow, like I don't think it's her on her own. You think it's the boyfriend? Maybe. Or they're in cahoots together? Yeah, I don't think she's doing it on her own. No, well, she couldn't. She was at the scene, right? So she didn't. Well, she could have faked the scene. No? Oh, so you're thinking that she actually did the shooting herself and faked the 911 call. I think that that could have been one possibility, right? Like that's a possibility. But I don't think that that's what happened. Like, I don't think she did it on her own if she was involved at all. She didn't do it on her own. I think we're leaning towards the boyfriend at this point. Whitley would argue that the statements that she made to her grandmother were made to sound bigger than they actually were. That her parents had softened the idea of her going to ECU and had even accompanied her to her orientation and bought her apartment supplies. When accused of being emotionless when discussing her parents' death... She said that talking through the events helped her to process things, but that everyone else seemed fearful to talk to her about it. And she does. When you listen to interviews, when she's talking about her parents' death, it does seem very dull Hmm. and without emotion. But I thought if you had wanted to talk about something and then realized nobody else would talk about it with you because they were afraid of your emotions, wouldn't you learn to, to tame down your emotions so that you could at least talk about it? I don't know if I'd be thinking that clearly if I had just witnessed my parents be murdered. But this is in the months after. This isn't right after. Yeah, maybe. It's all sounding a little suspicious, all of it right now. Mm -hmm. Over the course of the investigation, Whitley was questioned five different times and made to role play the struggle with the intruder and the events that she witnessed. What? Police would also pull her cell phone records at her urging because she had made posts to social media and had texted John from her bedroom that night. Police would find, along with her messages and posting history, that her phone had been turned off at 1.25 a.m. after showing a signal bounce off a cell tower that was about seven miles from her house. And I looked it up where all the cell phone towers were around her house. And it looks like that's the closest tower. Yeah, so she was probably at her parents' house when she made that call or text. Yeah, there aren't a lot of towers close to that house. It looks like the police followed through on that lead by pulling security camera footage from a local gas station at the vicinity. But ultimately, no arrests were ever made. The police were seemingly unsatisfied with any of the answers they had. Hmm. And in the community, it seemed really obvious who it was. In October 2012, Sheriff Page would state that DNA evidence had ruled out all who were initially investigated as suspects, but then on the first anniversary of the French's death would backtrack on that statement and say that no one had been ruled out. Oh, so I wonder if they've gotten some new evidence then? It's so interesting how cold cases are investigated and you can see that as time progresses on and no answers are found that it just leads to more speculation and more assumptions with each case, right? I think if it was Whitley, they would have figured that out sooner because she's so close to home. You know, like it's her parents. Well, and it seems so obvious that it would be her. Right. Right. So I feel like if it was her, they would have already found that out. As the case wore on and answers remained elusive, the residents of Rockingham County hung wreaths with Carolina blue ribbons as a memorial to the Frenches and vowed not to take them down until justice was served. In July 2015, people in the community started a French family irrevocable trust fund to raise funds for a reward for any information about the deaths of Troy and LaDonna French. The wreaths would remain hung and the rewards unclaimed for almost four years. Whoa, that's so traumatic for the family. When you don't have the answers and you're waiting that long, I can't even imagine the torment that would put you through as a family member or a loved one of the victims. It would be awful. It would. In the wake of no answers and the case going cold, the French and Mosley families and the community at large would start to speculate on their own who had murdered Troy and LaDonna. 
Rumors spread and gossip was everywhere. Oh, I bet. A small town, rural town. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, and the tight-lipped police officers and sealed search warrants flamed the fires of speculation everywhere. Oh, yeah, it would. Mm-hmm. All fingers pointed directly towards Whitley, the only person to escape the crazy intruder that night and the only one to seemingly have a motive against her parents for not supporting her relationship with John Alvarez. Hmm. August 2012 was the last time that Willie made a public appearance to speak. She was aware of the rumors, but says that she was mostly shielded by her father's family. While some of the French family may have harbored some suspicions towards Whitley and John, they were not as open about it as some of LaDonna's family. Oh, that's interesting. So this family starts to be torn apart by these rumors, this very close-knit family. Well, it would, Mm -hmm. because those who are believing it's her and those who aren't. Mm-hmm. It's just so sad that this close-knit family that used to get together all the time, weekly dinners, is now being torn apart and taking sides on this unsolved case. That is really sad. It sounds like the police weren't releasing any kind of information because they were trying to protect the investigation. Right. And you can see how, too, like if you really felt like she did it, if anyone said she didn't, you would that would be so hard to hear. And vice versa, if you didn't think she did it, to have someone accuse her. Mm-hmm. Emotions would be so highly charged. Oh, they would. What a terrible predicament for all of them. Mm-hmm. Whitley seemed unbothered by the accusative rumors towards her, but she took exception to those made about John. She believed that he was a good man and that he had helped her and her brother Hunter through a very difficult time. He came from a good family and was hardworking, and she adamantly denied that he had anything to do with her parents' murder. So she stands by John and says, no, he has nothing to do with it. We'll see, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That's who Christie's pointing fingers at. In that direction, anyways. (laughs) But her opinions would not stop the rumors. Speculation ran rampant in the media and on social media and in the small talk at local diners. The rumors were spurred on by Whitley's unsure account of what the intruder had looked like, and what they wore, and the fact that police had released the crime scene back to the family so quickly. Within 28 hours of the shooting, the family was scrubbing the blood off the floors and the walls of the house in an attempt to erase the horror proof of what had happened so that Whitley and Hunter wouldn't have to view those things. I'm always so shocked that the families are left to clean up the crime scenes. I know. Like, why do we not have people that clean up the crime scenes? Well, there are, but you have to pay for them. Oh. But I think that would be a normal family's reaction that we just need to make this better so that those two children, they didn't have to see that. Can't blame them for wanting to clean it up and get rid of that visual reminder no not at all no right that's what the family's gonna do you want to get rid of we all would do that whitley had already experienced it but hunter had never saw anything and so they wanted to make sure that he never had that image and even for whitley like going back there and seeing all that even just going back in the house like did she stay in the house like are they living in the house right now again No. no she said it took her a long time to actually go and even be in the house and especially alone in the house but she would never sleep in the house again right no i yeah. don't blame her there was a closet door that the police had removed bullets from that was actually burned the very next day by a neighbor who was trying to help so let's burn the evidence that's what they did and then there was no chance to go back and reevaluate the evidence yeah. it was a huge area of speculation and and criticism for how this case was handled was that the crime scene was released so quickly back into the family's hands. Mm-hmm. The contents of the warrants being issued became items of intense scrutiny as people tried to figure out what leads the police were chasing and to fill in the gaps of information that was not being provided through the media. And judges started ordering the warrants sealed because of that speculation. So one of those things that had fallen under scrutiny was one of the warrants had requested security footage from the gas station. And so people just went wild and rampant about why were they pulling security cameras? Well, something must have been found. Right. And even the gas attendant had made a comment to the media that, well, obviously they found something then. Oh, yeah. You could just see this would be going rampant around town. So in the four years following the shootings, what happened at the French home in the early morning of February 4th was the most talked about crime in Rockingham County. Despite the outward appearance that the police were no longer working the case, they continued to follow any leads that they could to crack the case. From one of his first press conferences, Sheriff Page had made a bold claim that the murderer would be able to run, but they would not be able to hide from their DNA. Investigators really thought that the piece that would solve their puzzle was hidden somewhere in those five drops of blood that were found. And they weren't wrong. Okay, we're going to get into the science stuff. That's right. This is my, where I might get a little nerdy. So wait, so maybe maybe right now they don't even have the right suspect because otherwise they would have tested that blood. That's right. To John. And so, okay, it's another party. We have a different person. <laughs> 
good assumption, Christy. All right. <laughs> but you can see how people would just keep throwing speculation back on Whitley. And because the sheriff knew the family, people thought that maybe he might be protecting her. And Right. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think it still has to be someone familiar with the family. I don't think it's just a stranger off the street. They had to have known, like, to get the gun and... How would they do all those things? Yeah, yeah open the door with the key, you know where all that is. So yeah. someone who knows them, but you don't know somebody, who yet. Yeah, somebody yeah. they haven't tested yet. Right. Uh, I just find the science so awesome on this case. <laughs> I, it actually excites me I to talk about it. You should see her. She's just like gleeing. Well, when I was helping... Is that a word? Gleeing? Glee? Like when I was helping my oldest with his genetics unit in biology, this is when I was researching this case. Oh, fun. And so it was intriguing to put what he was learning into like, this is how they actually use it. So did you tell him? Were yeah. you telling him about your research? Yeah. That's really cool. And he found it fascinating. Yeah, that would have made that unit so much more interesting for mm-hmm. him. So the first truth that the blood spots revealed was that the intruder was a male. Okay. The police ran the DNA against anyone they thought might have access to the French home and they found no match. They ran it through all the usual databases and they found no match. They exhausted all the capabilities in the labs in all of North Carolina. Oh, wow. And began to have the DNA tested out of state. These additional tests took years to complete. Oh, I can only imagine. Mm -hmm. On October 31st, 2014, the DNA revealed that it was a partial match to John Alvarez. Oh. Someone had compared... DNA from the crime scene and the DNA collected from John during the investigation. And while they did not match, someone noticed that there was enough similarities to be a relative of John's. So does he have brothers? Like, does he have some nearby like He has four brothers. Oh, right. Four brothers. Or sorry, he has three brothers. He's one of four. Oh. Mm -hmm. So we've got three brothers and a dad that we could look at. Yeah. Because is it showing like more of an immediate family member than like a long lost cousin? That's what they determine next. So with that information in hand, the investigators decide to run a YSRT test on John and the crime scene DNA. So do you remember how we talked about mitochondrial DNA in the Patricia War case? Mm-hmm. That's the DNA that's passed on through the mitochondria in the cell to all new babies, and it only comes from the mother so that you can trace back a person's lineage on their maternal side because any child born to that mother would have the same mitochondrial DNA. Right. Well, YSRT is a similar type of test using only the Y chromosome, oh. which is passed on just by the father. Right. So a match on this test would prove if one of John's brothers or his father, or if he had children, one of his children, were the relative that they were looking for. Oh, so this is going on his paternal side. Yeah. So dad is in the mix then. Dad is in the mix. Or grandpa. Is grandpa around? (laughs) (laughs) But this test came back negative. What? Mm -hmm. So it's not on the father's side? No. The Y chromosomes from the crime scene and John's didn't match. So police began to look at other second degree relatives in John's family, but really didn't know how or where to kind of begin because the family's huge then if you're looking for a second degree relative. Yeah, because now you're looking at uncles and cousins and mm-hmm. yeah. second cousins and third cousins. And <laughs> and they couldn't find anybody in his family or second degree that would actually have access to the house because they knew the person had to have had access to the house because the gun was taken months before. Right. So it has to be someone who's familiar with them. And they couldn't find anybody that and was honestly, familiar. If you have like a fifth cousin twice removed living in another state, why do, why are they going to care? Exactly. You know, why are they going to come and do that? It has to be someone familiar with them because this seemed like a personal attack. It doesn't seem random. So how do you narrow down that search in a large family? Well, I feel like you're going to tell me. I am. <laughs> If only they had a better witness description of what the suspect looked like, then they could narrow down their search. Because they can't just randomly go test everybody for their blood, right? They could ask them, but they have to have probable cause to actually ask somebody for a blood sample. Right. And they didn't have any probable cause for any of his relatives. But couldn't they start with like height and weight kind of? You know what I mean? Like Because if he has a six foot five 300 pound uncle it's probably maybe not, not that him. guy yeah yeah and they did do a little bit of that but whitley's description of the man kept changing and so eyewitnesses are never that reliable no unfortunately. they never are no. right well she hadn't even noticed that her old mother had been shot in the head right and so she didn't notice a lot of anything that was yeah. going on that night oh, she and who can blame her you'd mm-hmm. be in such a state of shock to wake up all of a sudden to somebody jumping on top of you and then running and watching your parents be murdered yeah. all within minutes right and now yeah. for this whole four years leading up to this she's been accused and questioned mm-hmm. 
Yeah, terrible for her. But this is where phenotyping comes in. So phenotyping is how your genetic makeup makes you look. So you have your genotyping, which is like all your different genes, but phenotyping is directly on how something looks. Oh, so it's like your photo genes. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> in February 2015, three years after the murder, Captain Howell, who is now the current investigator on the case, contacted Parabon Snapshot DNA Phenotyping Services. With this technology, they were able to work with just the crime scene DNA and look at just the segments of the DNA that would result in an appearance on ancestry of the suspect. So they can predict skin tone and eye color, whether you have a cleft chin or a dimple, just from that. Just from a blood sample. Just from a blood sample. So I could give them my blood and they could tell me what I look like. Yeah. So they use the DNA to actually make a picture of the suspect. (gasps) That is so cool. It is incredible what you can do with science. Yeah. And so you honestly have to go to our Facebook page and check out the actual report from Parabon that shows you the intruder's actual photo and the photo that they made from his DNA. Okay. I got to (laughs) look. We're going to pause it for a second. (laughs) No, because then you'll know who it is. You can't look. Hold on. Don't look. I can't look yet. No, don't look yet. You have to wait till after you're done the case because I still want you to speculate on who did it. All right. I'm assuming it's a really good match then. It is uncanny how good of a match it is. Wow. Yeah. On May 7th, 2015, the results came back and it was not anyone but the killer who could have suspected it. The picture that Parabon came back with had an uncanny resemblance to John and John's older brother, Jose. So John and his older brother look just like this. Yep. With a picture of the suspect in hand, police now knew they had to ask for DNA samples from the man that they had never connected to the crime scene at all. His older brother. Yep. The samples were collected from John's father, Jose Sr., and Jose Jr. on May 11, 2015, just five days before John and Whitley's wedding, where Jose would act as a groomsman. Yep. So they're about to get married. They're about to get married, and they're pulling DNA from John's father and Jose Jr. Because remember <laughs> that YSRT test had already excluded John's father and Jose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was my next question, actually, was I thought it wasn't a direct relative. On his dad's side. Yeah. When those test yeah. results came back... <laughs> Christy's got big. What the heck? (laughs) Well, I'm like, well, maybe Jose isn't his dad's, but it matched with his dad, too. It didn't match with his dad's. So Jose Jr. maybe has a different dad. Ooh. Ooh, Mamacita. (laughs) When those test results came back on August 25th, 2015, Jose Silvana Alvarez Jr. was arrested in his apartment in Greensboro without incident and charged with two counts of first degree murder. His DNA was a perfect match. No. Mm -hmm. It's his brother? Yep. So is he obsessed with Whitley and that's why? We'll get into it. The $3,500 price tag for the phenotyping test was worth it. Oh, absolutely. Initially, he would deny ever being in the French residence. But when confronted with the DNA evidence, he changed his story. Sheriff's Page's words rang true. You can run, but you can't hide from your DNA. Yeah. So Jose was 28 years old at the time of his arrest and was John's elder brother, the oldest of the four boys. In February 1987, Jose entered the world after delivery complicated by an umbilical cord wrapped around his neck. Just two weeks after his parents were married. Oh, so this was a real shotgun yep. <laughs> Unknown to all was Jose Sr. was not Jose Jr.'s biological father. So Jose Sr. didn't know it either? No one knew it. So mama had a secret. Yep. That was revealed with the DNA test that the police ran. And that's why the YSRT test failed to identify him as a suspect. Right. So you totally had it. Oh. Mm-hmm. Jose Jr. was never aware of the fact that his father was not his biological father. So now this has just blown this family apart, too. Yes, absolutely. Because, Mama, you got some splaining to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty tragic. He was raised with his three younger brothers in and around the community of Stokesdale, North Carolina, where his parents owned and operated a landscaping company. And for his whole life, he believed that his father was his father and that his brothers were full brothers. Like, he was never raised any differently. Right. Jose's younger life seems pretty unremarkable, actually. In a town where everybody seemed to know everybody, few people remembered very much about Jose. Most just say that he was quiet, and he was described as having a normal childhood with supportive parents. The family moved around a lot when the children were little, but always within the same area of North Carolina. 
Jose attended three different elementary schools and then Rockingham Middle School, followed by Rockingham County High School, where he would graduate from. And that's the same high school that Whitley and John met at and began their relationship. Hmm. This sounds pretty average right now. There were only a few things that really stuck out about his childhood. Yeah, and so, it's not even like he has the trauma of like finding out that my dad's not my dad. Nope. You know, that came after. Yeah. So I'm wondering what spurs this. Jose reports that he did have incidences throughout his childhood when he would lose track of time and not be able to recall things that had occurred during these times. And there is also one report of a concussion that was a result of a baseball injury, but it seems that it was pretty minor because Hmm. there was no follow-up around it. As a young adult, he enrolled in North Carolina State to study veterinary medicine after high school, but he didn't handle the pressure very well and dropped out within the first year. And it was during this time that he says he was developing a real problem with focus and relationships with others were becoming increasingly difficult for him to maintain. He increasingly grew more recluse, and while he performed well at his landscaping job, he lacked any close friends and began to retreat into different fantasy worlds. He would eventually be diagnosed with emotional immaturity and severe anxiety after the murders. In July 8, 2016, he pled guilty to two counts of capital murder. Oh, Mm -hmm. well, what can he do? They have your DNA. That's right. (laughs) At the sentencing hearing, his motives for the murder became apparent, and they are even more shocking than anyone else could have suspected. So it's not because he's jealous? Nope. Really? Mm-hmm. How else could it be? This is going to throw you for a loop. These are like the most bizarre motives that I have ever heard. Aww. Jose had developed an obsession with the French's home after seeing the address one day when Whitley was visiting their family home. She had left her driver's license out on the counter, and he had saw the address. His curiosity led him to go and view the home where the smells from the dryer vent intrigued him. What? Smelling dryer vents apparently wasn't a new thing for him. Oh, no. So he's this kid that walks around smelling your dryer vent? Uh-huh. In his job as a landscaper, he would often smell the dryer vents at clients' homes. Smells can be a powerful image creator for fantasies, and he was in this kind of fantasy world that he liked to live in because his real life wasn't going well. Right. But you know what? Laundry is a great smell. Mm-hmm. Like, have you ever been walking around town and you walk by a house and you can tell that they're doing laundry? It does yep. smell great. It does. <laughs> One of my daughters really loves the smell of laundry. <laughs> In fact, at Christmas, I bought her a laundry scented candle and oh. she loves it. <laughs> but does she go and sniff people's dryer vents? <laughs> Uh, no. (laughs) Thankfully, no. Jose's fixation on smells coming from dryer vents would eventually lead to him entering the home using a spare key he found underneath the deck. Because he was a landscaper, he knew where people hid their spare keys. And so he just found Mm. the key underneath the deck. He was enthralled with the French home. It had just been freshly painted. It was clean and orderly. And he would begin to enter the home around August 11th, once or twice a month, just to feed his obsession with the house and its smells. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was not expecting this. No. (laughs) (laughs) I thought girl obsession, not house obsession. No, he had no obsession with Whitley at all. He eventually had his own key cut from the spare key under the deck because it was more convenient. And the skin fragments found on the spare key were believed to be from the man who copied the key. You just never know in life. You know, like this poor guy working cutting keys like, oh, I'm going to cut this key today and it's going to lead to the brutal murder of two people. Jose would enter the house usually between the hours of one and two in the morning and walk around and look at things in the house for five to ten minutes each time. When the Frenches were home, he would be extra careful to be quiet and would enjoy watching them sleep. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's creepy. So creepy. I'm assuming like he's going in there when they're at work and nobody's home. Like that's what I would do if I wanted to no, creep into someone's appa- house and smell your dryer vent. No, apparently he actually got more thrills to watch them sleep. Huh. It probably added to the picture perfectness of this home, right? Mm-hmm. This sweet little family asleep in their beds. Yeah. So is he not, like you said, he had a good family life. Yeah. From all accounts, he had a decent family life. And how his family recovers from this afterwards, I think is just a, even a bigger testimony of his family was a decent family. Huh. Yeah. So it's not that he was lacking this no. family support and love. Not at all. He was particularly drawn to Hunter's room on the second floor because of all the things and trophies and such that were displayed there. And so Hunter's room on the second floor was somewhere that he, he frequented often. Hmm. And then when Whitley was there, he needed to look at her room too. And she just happened to wake up when he walked in there. Mm-hmm. 
So if she had slept through it, this may have not even happened. He says he never had any intention of taking anything, but on one of the visits to the house, he did find Troy's handgun. He thought it would be good to have for protection and would carry it with him during every subsequent visit after that. To avoid discovery, Jose would park on an adjacent lawn, never at the French residence, and then would creep across the lawn under the cover of trees. Huh. So he had a whole routine. Oh yeah, and he's a landscaper. He knows what's going to cover him. Yeah. <laughs> He Not knows that it's where... hard to know what tree you can hide behind, but no, you know but what I mean. he knows where people place their security cameras mm-hmm. and things like that. Exactly. On the night of the murder, he had been looking at things in Hunter's room and entered Whitley's room out of curiosity, but she heard him. In a panic, he tried to stop her from screaming by covering her mouth and threatening her with the knife. When that didn't work, he fled, wanting to get away as fast as he could. Unfortunately, LaDonna and Troy were in his way and he opened fire on them to clear his path. Oh, so my initial thought was right, mm-hmm. that he was just trying to flee and they got in the way. That's right. The shooting was a result of his decision to enter the house coupled with his decision to carry the gun. Yeah. All resulting in the impulsive decision to shoot the Frenches in an attempt to escape. Ah. Oh. Jose states that he does not recall any specifics about the shooting and describes being in a partially disassociated state at the time. I can imagine. But so how terrible. pointless. Totally pointless. But like you said, if you're not planning to use the gun, don't bring the gun into the house. Well, it's just one bad decision leading After to another. another, to another, to another that actually gets him in the situation. Yeah. And two innocent people tragically die, mm-hmm. brutally die. During the sentencing, Jose's lawyer explained that he had tried to explore every avenue of the insanity plea, but while borderline, ultimately Jose did not qualify for it. No, and he knew he was wrong by going in there. Mm-hmm. That's why he was trying to run. That's why he went in the middle of the night. He hid Covered in the trees. He tried, got his own key made, tried to avoid the cameras. He absolutely knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. He didn't go in there maybe planning to murder them, but bringing in weapons with you means it's not off the table. Yeah. His low emotional reasoning and the bizarre component he felt to go in the house did not override the fact that he knew exactly what he was doing mm-hmm. and what he was doing was wrong. He was being a creepy dirtbag. Mm-hmm. Like such a violation to have someone coming into your house like that while you're sleeping. Like that is so creepy. It does. It just creeps me totally out. Uh, Maybe there was someone looking in your room. I know, night. right? <laughs> Why'd you pick this case? <laughs> was it because I was doing this case that I was seeing people? <laughs> oh, was it while you were researching yeah. this? Oh, that's probably what it was then. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder you like looked around the house. <laughs> but Jose knew what he was doing was wrong. And For he sure. tried to cover up his crime. He disposed of the gun and the knife and the clothes in a dumpster near his house the day after the murders. Yeah. And years had gone by. Mm-hmm. And it just makes me sick that he probably was trying to comfort Whitley. You know, he's going to be in her wedding. He was in their wedding. Yeah. There's pictures of him all being buddy-buddy with her and all the time knowing that he had caused her so much pain. And not just by taking her parents, but that all the rumors were focused right on her and his brother. Yeah. And he allowed that to continue. Oh, do I need to say it again? Derbeck. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Jose's guilty plea was accepted because he was forthcoming with the details and had purposely offered a plea to save his sister-in-law and her family the pain of a trial because after all, they were all family now. Yeah, but that's only because he got caught. He didn't want a speedy resolution. He let this go on for years after. It's true. But to watch him at the trial, I have to say that I did have compassion on him. You did? I did. I don't. Because <laughs> I think that he was just messed up. Yeah. Yeah, but he knew what he was doing was wrong. Yeah. I have a hard time feeling some compassion here. <laughs> <laughs> but he accepted responsibility for his actions during the trial. He expressed remorse to the families for his actions. He said, I do regret what happened. If I could take it back, I would. I'm sorry. And when all the victims were reading their victim impact statements... Jose made eye contact with each one of them and he cried throughout most of the statements, which we don't see a lot. No, we don't. And I cannot even imagine you make that split decision, bad choice. You weren't intending that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm the type of person that you can lay a big guilt trip on me. Like guilt rules me a lot. (laughs) And I cannot even imagine the sickening guilt that you would feel. And you would have to feel that your Mm -hmm. whole life. Yeah, but I think his decision of, okay, I've thrown away the clothes, so now I have to keep it hidden. Like, it was just one bad decision after another that probably kept the the lie hidden as well. Yeah. Right? I'm still having a hard time. I I get that he was feeling remorseful, but still needs to be held accountable. Oh, absolutely. 
He was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. Jose remains in central prison, Riley, and reporters are still trying to contact him because they still don't believe he acted alone. Oh, yeah. really? No, mm-hmm. I think he acted alone. Do There's you think he sti- did it? Oh, I totally do think he acted alone. Yeah. I think it's just the way he laid it out. It matches the the evidence from the crime scene. Yeah. Perfectly. And are you going to really find two people that are just obsessed with a house? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> But because all the rumors had circulated for that many years beforehand, people were just unwilling to accept that, what, it's just this crazy circumstances that led to the death? Like, it doesn't have more meaning than that? Well, it's kind of like a robbery gone wrong. Mm -hmm. We hear of those kinds of things happening all the time. So they're just so panicked to get out of the situation. And he's coming down the stairs. Whitley's behind him. The, the parents are in front of him running up the stairs. He was probably feeling trapped. Like, if mm-hmm. I don't shoot my way out of here, I'm going to get caught. And I think that his psychologist, how she later testifies that he had a low emotional IQ, he didn't have the capacity to kind of think through that high of an emotional situation. Right. And was just acting out and I need to get out. Right. Even just pulling mm-hmm. out the gun and yelling, stand back, probably would have caused them to stand back and he probably could have got out. Yeah. But he without didn't. having to shoot. Yeah, but he he couldn't do that. Yeah. So that's the twisted and rumor-filled case of Jose Alvarez Jr. with one of the most unusual motives that I have ever heard of. Yeah, that is wild. <laughs> I just find that this case was so interesting because it was actually the search for a motive that drove the rumors in the wrong direction. That's true. It mm-hmm. wasn't the motive at all. No, they all suspected the motives to be more sinister than what they actually were. The randomness seemed harder to accept than believing that their own family member had participated in murdering her parents. Oh, for sure. So sad. It's That's crazy. Okay, I just looked it up now because now that we know who <laughs> it is. And wow, I'm looking at the snapshot prediction results, the composite profile. And yeah, we will definitely post this on our Facebook because it's pretty uncanny that they can get it so close. Mm-hmm. It's not exact, but it is very similar. That's the one that they actually post on the company's website. Huh. Of like, murder solved. Wow. It is so cool. There have been many. They just came out in 2016. And since then, they've been closing cold cases like crazy. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Watch out, dirtbags. Yep. <laughs> Phenotyping is coming for you. Science is amazing. Well, it is awesome because if you have DNA, that they can do this. In lots of cold cases, they have some DNA, but they have nobody to compare that DNA to. No. And so then you add a composite to that a face to that dna and And you start to catch all these random people that they never thought were even connected to the crime scene in the first place yeah that opens a whole new world Mm -hmm. so neat it is and i do think that the law enforcement in this case actually deserve a a pat on the back a lot of the times we're like why did they miss that but in this case it would have been really easy to arrest the wrong person and just say you know what it was you and follow the the public opinion but instead Even though it was extremely frustrating at the time, what they did, they protected the case from the media's attention and they tried their best to not taint the jury pool and everything. So they really did a good job. They did. Mm -hmm. Because with it being a small town that everybody knows everybody, how many people went up to the sheriff like, hey, Sam, (laughs) yeah, how come you haven't arrested Whitley yet? Yeah. Don't you know this and this and this? Yeah. Because people were were taking the rumors that they'd heard as... The gospel truth, right? Which people unfortunately do. Yeah. So, no, I agree. Good police work. Yeah, I think so, too. And for not giving up, too. Because for this case to stay open that many years and not just be put on a shelf. Like, Mm -hmm. that's great. Yeah. And I think the most amazing thing and why I chose this case for Family Day is actually what happened afterwards. The two families came together after everything was solved. Troy's brother had been very vocal about how much he hated Jose and he was glad that he wasn't getting the death penalty because he wanted him to rot in hell and that was his victim impact statements but afterwards went and actually hugged Jose Sr. because he was so torn apart by what was happening and the family just collectively all agreed that okay we didn't want John and Whitley to get married but now that we're all family we're in this together and so they were both supportive of each side of the family which I think is so incredible. That is lovely. Mm Mm-hmm. That's how family should be. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, and we have talked about this before, it's hard for both sides of the family. If that's your child that has done that horrible act, or if you have, your family has been victimized by a horrible act like that, it's so hard on everyone. Yeah. But that is really big of them. Like that shows their true characters. I think so too. And that's what family is, right? It's not about who's related to who and who has each other's blood, but if you're willing to support each other. Absolutely. Right? And stand by each other mm-hmm. and 
that's what this family did on both sides, even despite all the rumors and everything like that. They they look like they have put that aside or at least are attempting to. Right. And so that's our family day case for everyone. Aw, so go hug your family tight. Yeah. <laughs> and think twice before you make assumptions. That's right. And clean out your dryer vents so no one can smell them. <laughs> And if you feel that creeping suspicion that somebody's watching you while you sleep, get up and check it out. No, if she stayed sleeping, nothing would have happened. That's true. (laughs) But we hope you guys have a good week with your families this week. Yeah, enjoy the holiday and some extra time together. And if you don't live in Canada and this isn't a holiday for you, just spend some time with your family. Take a holiday. Make your own holiday. That's right. We hope you have a wonderful week and join us again next week. See ya. Bye. You're going to test how I'm paying attention today. I know. Today of all days. I did not know you would have the week before. (laughs) Get a notepad. (laughs) What would I consider you? (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't say. (laughs) I'm glad you moved on. Native of the Rockingham County. County. I can't trust myself. (laughs) Japanese din din. Din din. Troy prepared Whitley's favorite Japanese dinner. Thank you. <laughs> I thought a drink would make it better, but it didn't. Wah, wah, wah. Just no, wait, not that you're a coward yeah. if you don't go and okay, chase no. your, your perpetrator. <laughs> you should stay away from the perpetrator. Yeah, let them run away. Stay safe. <laughs> and skid. I'm oh, sorry. They also found a spin. Skid marks. Skid marks. <laughs> what happened your last case the guy pooped outside the <laughs> you never know it's all about the poop it's not out of the question so they brought their box in a gun or they they there was no force there is <laughs> what did you hear my stomach i did that was my stomach <laughs> i thought it was a vehicle outside <laughs> Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.